the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. What I'm about to discuss is adult in nature, but... It's a conversation that we feel here needs to be had. Uh, we've been following the story. We haven't discussed it on the programme because, to be quite honest, uh, he was, is a disgusting individual. And, and there are no words to describe the hideous things that Kieran Craven did. He was jailed for 10 years in the last number of days. He worked in RTE for many, many years. He was a highly respected television sports producer, considered to be extraordinarily good at his job, popular with his workmates, all of those things. Tracy Piggott was interviewed on one of the news programmes the other night, the horse racing commentator, and she knew him well. And she said, my, there was never a sign, there was never a hint, there was never any... Anything off about Kieran Craven, and yet he was abusing children in the most awful way all over the world. He was using his position, traveling all over the world. And quite a sickening, sickening story. But it, it raises a whole conversation about how these things are investigated, how these things, how these people, these individuals, hide in plain sight and is it possible for someone to spot danger signs you know can we as ordinary individuals working around other people can we spot red flags are there red flags that we can spot and also in the investigation of crime and there were some great articles written about the detail 
that uh, Gardaí and police in Britain worked incredibly closely together on putting the case against uh, Craven and, and, and on all that. But criminologist Patrick Tidmarsh has written and teaches extensively around the world on the investigation of sex crimes, just like this, all sorts of sex crimes. And he proposes and has written about a new way of investigating, which he calls the whole story method. And I want to discuss things like hiding in plain sight and many other elements of it uh, with Patrick Titchmarsh. He he joins me now from Australia. There may be a slight delay on the line, so we'll bear with it. But uh, Patrick Titchmarsh, good evening in your part of the world. Good morning from Cork. Hey, good morning to you, PJ. Thanks for having me. Good to speak with you. Before I get into, and I'm, we sent you some stuff to read about with regard to Kieran Craven, so you're you're familiar with the case. But talk to me about your whole story method. What what is it exactly? Sure. Um, so the way we traditionally investigated sex crimes, whether they were against adults or children is that we had to prove that a particular event took place or an act uh, took place so you can charge someone with an act. And so all their um, time and energy went into trying to prove that 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 happened. And as we know, most people know their abusers. Most offending happens in secret. I mean, you were talking before in your introduction about um, his colleague not knowing anything about him or anything that took took place. So, And you talked about people hiding in plain sight. So... um, most of what happens is in secret. There are not witnesses. There's not CCTV. If there's forensic evidence, it might be hard to find or, or it might not prove that an act was non-consensual, for example. So what we said in the way we wanted to change it is actually this is a relationship-based crime. These crimes are happening in acquaintance relationships, intimate relationships, are very closely associated with family violence. You often find where there's family violence and sexual abuse. And so this is a relationship-based crime. We ought to be investigating the entire relationship. And so what comes up from that is you see how he operated, what he did and how he did it. So we teach our investigators the psychology of offenders, what they do, the way they think about it, the way they see the world. And then obviously what impact they have on the people that they abuse so that they, in effect, they need to know him and who he is so they can hear her when she comes in and tells her story. And often people are confused by uh, myths and misconceptions. You know, why does someone stay in that relationship? Why did the boy keep going around to his house? You know, um, and, and so the answers to those questions are generally in the relationship. And most of them are actually in the phase before the offence itself actually mm. takes place. The, the, the grooming way. process, which I think you point out, you read pains to point it out, Patrick. Grooming is a non-sexual process. And that's... And, well, and that, and, yeah. Sorry, do go on, Pete. The, I, the I, grooming I is a non-sexual right. process for the most part. That's exactly right. So so I think when we first started working with our specialist crime, sexual crime investigators here, they they all knew what grooming was. We all know what grooming is, but we tend to see it as the sexual phase of the relationship, whether it's, you know, uh, in abusing children, introducing them to uh, ideas and images about sex, perhaps, or in rape and sexual assault, um, um, where um, they will use particular different strategies. Uh, but actually, the non-sexual phase that takes place before is is really the most important because offenders 
target vulnerability. And if they can't see vulnerability, they'll create vulnerability. And once they do that, what they're really looking for is power and control and, and isolation from any kind of help, you know, any um, other parent that might be around or any mate who's out on a night, you know, in the club. Um, so they're looking for that power and that control and that isolation before they will then move into a more sexualized phase. And, and I'm kind of making it sound really deliberate, um, but sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's much, much more subtle than that. So in, in adult cases of rape and sexual assault, you know, grooming can often look like, you know, there's buying someone a drink and that's a nice gesture and there's buying someone a drink because you're putting a double or a triple in it because you're moving towards that power and control and incapacitation uh, element. So it's quite hard to pick that. But once you look at the entire relationship from the moment people know each other um, to the moment that the person comes in and says, this is what happens to me, you find a whole lot of relevant evidence comes up in that story that our investigators didn't really see before. And I was just talking and doing some training with some UK coppers um, last night and one of them was telling me about a story um, and a witness uh, to the event that had taken place. They didn't witness the sexual element of it, but they witnessed the power and control and authority element. And they didn't, this was a child actually, child witness, they didn't even really know what it was that they were witnessing, but it was a key piece of relevant evidence that showed that the aspects of the story she was saying were absolutely corroborated, even though no one witnessed the event itself. Okay. So we're talking about moving to get, before we make our judgments, before we get caught on myths and misconceptions, know him so you can listen to her and hear everything that she's saying about what's taken place from the moment they met to the moment you met her as an investigator. Yeah. Are there myths that we carry around with us, all of us, not just investigators and, and police officers? Are there yes. myths that we carry around in our minds about sex and consent and, and all those things? Absolutely. We, we all do. And um, actually, just before coming on here, I was remembering there's a study in um, from Northern Ireland, actually, from about 10 years ago, McGee uh, um, and her colleagues. And she found she presented hundreds of potential jurors with a range of myths and misconceptions about sexual assault and rape. There were adult sexual assault and rape myths and misconceptions. And she found that 50 percent of the myths and misconceptions were supported by one in five of the people that she asked. So 20% of the group. And some of them were supported by 40% of the group. So when you think about what has to happen in a court of law, that you need to take 12 people to understand a story beyond any doubt, not one doubt, those myths and misconceptions really count. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of three phases where they really impact. Um, because you wrote in the notes you sent to me, you were talking about attrition and policing. And police are often criticised because um, when cases are reported, most of, of, of them fall out at the policing phase, That's then right. some in the prosecutorial phase. And then, you know, uh, sexual crimes, your listeners need to know, that have the lowest conviction rates of any interpersonal crime. But actually, the biggest attrition is people who don't report, who never tell their story. So... Only about half of rape victims will ever tell anybody. Uh, only about one in eight will report. Children report even less than that. If you have a disability or you're from some other minority group uh, from the queer community, you're much less likely to report. And, and the main reason that people don't um, are fear of judgment. I mean, there might be fear of the perpetrator. There might be much more concrete fears than that. But by and large, they're afraid of us and what we think and the judgments we'll make of them and their stories. So these myths and misconceptions really count. 
Um, and if I can give you some of them for an example, there was a great study done a few years ago where researchers looked at 50 rape cases from the 1950s um, and matched cases in the 2000s. And the question they asked was, do defence counsel do anything differently now than they were doing 60 years ago? Mm. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that the answer was, no, they're pretty much doing exactly the same thing. But the devil was in the detail here because um, back in the 50s, they were running myths and misconceptions about, well, look, he's a really nice guy and he wouldn't do a thing like that. Or, um, well, if she was a woman of virtue, she would have resisted, so she would have been physically injured and there weren't any injuries, so perhaps this isn't true. Now, you can't get away with that today. I mean, maybe yeah. you can in places, but you can't get away with that sort of nonsense anymore. And you can't ask about people's sexual histories in the same way and do you know what's now known as slut-shaming. Um, but in the 2000s, so they, they're not using those tactics anymore, but they're looking at others, like uh, why was there a delay in reporting? Why did she continue in a relationship with him? Uh, why are there memory issues here? So they're deliberately misleading people about traumatic memory and what trauma does mm -hmm. to the memory. Um, and so the tactic is still there to, to create that doubt by using a myth and a misconception uh, about crime. And that's why people don't report. And that's why police, you know, find it hard to have enough evidence to um, the phrase, the key phrase is mm. here is, is there a reasonable prospect of conviction? Yeah. And when you look at what we as a community still think about this and how difficult it is to prosecute that, that's actually quite a hard question to look at a story and go, yes, I think we have a reasonable. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns, but a deep voice doesn't sell B2B and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Prospect here. Yeah. You make yeah. a point as well that when you actually do get a perpetrator in front of you as an investigator, they yeah. don't actually lie very much. That's a weird one. Oh, that is a weird one. And I... I need to go back and look at the way I wrote that because they do lie. They lie all the time, and they're very skilled liars. And, That's and, probably but, it, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and, and thinking about the way they hide in plain sight, as you say, the way they wear masks, you know, they can be incredibly skilled at it. But the point I'm talking about in the book is really when we come to interview them as suspects in a, of a crime, suspected of a crime, the, the traditional way of interviewing was often quite aggressive and threatening. And... And look, to be honest, none of us likes to be treated like that. And most of us want to be listened to and understood. And so one of the things that's difficult in the specialism of sexual crime investigation is you're going to work with people who've done things you find abhorrent. I mean, I could hear the tone of your voice, PJ, when you were talking about this uh, this guy uh, from RTE. Hear the the fury in in your tone. It's a human response, though. Patrick. It's a very human response, but but our job as investigators when we're working on cases is to help victims. And the way that we do that is by challenging him with her story so that we hear his story. And you can't hear someone's story very well if you're intimidating and threatening. So so we teach them to put their own feelings aside in a way and and try and tap that part of him that wants to be understood and wants to explain himself. And it, it's really not easy to do. Not everybody is suited to this work because mm. you're going to be sitting across the table from people that you really find um, appalling. Um, but it works. And you'd be amazed what people say when they feel understood, when they think, this, I'm, I can tell my story to this person, uh, even when they know what the consequences will be. You know, they'll go to jail, they might lose their family, whatever it is. You know, that urge to be understood, we call it in the training, tapping their desire to explain. Um, and it works really well. And it's a much better technique than the ones that most people see on telly of, you know, uh, leaning over people or throwing them up against the wall and that sort of thing. Uh, that really doesn't happen anymore. And it certainly doesn't happen in the special sexual crime area. Yeah, yeah. Very quiet, very calm investigation, almost as if you're trying to unpick a lock. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you need and you need to know the story and every single piece of evidence you've got and you need to put it to him to try and encourage him to tell his story. Because when people tell their stories, they make mistakes. Mm. You see, there's a kind of another human response to it is, well, you hurt that little girl or you hurt that little boy. We don't care. We just want to slam you in jail. Yes. Well, the way you might get to do that um, is by, first of all, making sure that anyone who, who wants to report, we need to encourage reporting. We need to let people know that we get this how this works and bring people forward um, to tell their story so that's the most important thing but once we are investigating if we do it well and we get to talk to him and challenge him and ask his view about what took place you really got to get him talking um, and you can't do that with the old traditional methods and, well, um, sounds, sounds to me like we need highly trained specialist detectives and I would suggest social service workers for this yeah it's funny you should say that because actually um 
social service workers make very good interviewers because they're good listeners. And, and you will know in your business that it's a listening business, right? Interviewing is a listening business. And, and that's not really ever been seen traditionally in police forces that it was the interviewing was about listening. It was seen to be about asking questions. Um, actually, you know, the answers are much more important than the questions. Okay. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit, if we could, uh, Patrick, at the time we have remaining, about the thing that I brought up in my introduction, and that is the hiding in plain sight. Now, yeah. you you believe that there are a few common traits that are flags. And, and do you believe that most of us can pick up on this? Um, well, the traits that I explore um, in that article, they're actually from from some researchers in, in New Zealand, Tony Ward um, and Tom Keenan, Devin Polishek and others. So, so implicit theory, uh, the reason it's in the article is I've been teaching it to, to police for quite some time and it's part of what we were talking about before of getting them to understand who they're sitting across the table from. Who is he? Uh, how does he see the world and how do you engage with him? Um, and so, so the, the traits... The traits are um, that they find adult relationships difficult to navigate. Now, imagine when you're talking about the fellow that you're talking about, um, he was probably looked as if he was very good at that. He was probably very skilled at and charming uh, and uh, seemed as if his life um, was going fine. But underneath that, he would not have felt able to cope in mature uh, adult relationships. That's why these men um, go towards children and they say things like, well, children understand me, you know. Um, and what they really mean is I can control that relationship. I feel in charge in that relationship and that feels safer to me. So in, in, in rapists, you see a slightly different version where they might talk about how difficult it is to know women and, and you know, it's an impossible task and so on. So, so you see this idea of they're not coping in, in these adult relationships. So they find some justification for why they're choosing to behave in an abusive way and then do you, do you want me to say what the other four are PJ? please briefly if you could yeah yeah so, so yeah so, so briefly um the second one is what's known as uncontrollability which is basically the idea that it's not my fault i can't help it you know i was drinking or using pornography or whatever it was um the third one is entitlement and i, I always think at that point then if, if you want to understand what entitlement is watch the tape of Donald Trump on the bus in the way that he talked about women, you know, and when you're rich and famous, do this, you know, and, and I can grab them there and I can kiss them and I know they don't want it, but I do it anyway. So you get that sense that if I feel that way, I should be allowed to do it. And those three together, you know, not coping in adult relationships, um, not taking responsibility and feeling entitled to behave in the way that makes you feel good is a kind of, you, you know, core problem for all, um, lots of offenders. But then in the last two, you get, the ability um, in the guy that you're talking about, the ability to objectify children and justify that to yourself. Um, and I think, um, as an aside, I don't think we're quite as clear as a community as we could be about how much we still objectify children. Certainly in the world online, there is a huge amount of objectification of children and young people there, um, which sex offenders will use to say, well, there's lots of other people doing it, it can't be that bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most of us see the nonsense of that, but sex offenders will use it to their advantage. And the last one, which is really, I think, the most important, is called nature of harm. And that's the way they minimise 
the damage you know they say well she was too young to understand or uh well she she hasn't told on me so it can't been that bad or you know he kept coming around or whatever it is they they are very skilled at lying to themselves about the impact of their behavior um and the other answer to your question is a lot of that might be might remain hidden um and although his colleague said i never saw any of it you know i bet you pj somebody did somebody knew somebody always knows somebody always sees um the way he is a particular comment but what we tend to do as people is we put that comment out of our mind and we say oh well, that was just a one off or that was you know just a problem that he had there or maybe we don't realize the impact of that comment absolutely and then when there's another comment we see that as an individual comment and we don't begin to piece these things together okay. i mean if you think about some of the well known rolf harris for example or jimmy savile or yeah. clearly uh, uh, mr craven um i people knew they they knew but they may not have known how to put what they knew together in a pattern <laughs> and they may not have known who to tell or how to tell they didn't know they what they were looking at Yeah. Yeah. I think we're becoming more aware. I think we're becoming more aware around children. And in fact, Ireland has come up with some fantastic, you know, studies and commissions that have really led the world in child protection measures. Um, but I think when it comes to rape and sexual assault, we're quite a long way behind seeing and we're just beginning in the last few years to see the impact mm. um how much sexual harassment, how much rape and sexual assault there is in our communities and how difficult it is for people to report and how hard it is for them to move through an adversarial justice system. So we need to look at other measures. Uh, and my bit of this little puzzle is to help specialist sexual crime investigators understand what they're listening to uh, by knowing the offenders and being able to listen to the people that come forward with their stories. Lastly Patrick, um as you know yourself, offenders post prison they are monitored in the community by social services in particular but also by police. Is there such a thing any such a thing as a one-time offender like can you ever take somebody off the radar after they have transgressed once well i think the short answer to that is if the vulnerabilities were there that led them to behave in that way that they did not manage themselves and control their behavior and took it out on other people then some element of risk will always remain and because there are so many of them i mean this is happening to one in five girls one in 12 boys uh, one in five women and one in 20 men there is a huge amount of offending in our culture you know you simply cannot manage all of those people and all of that risk so we divide them into low and medium and high risk and we manage them in different ways and and again you know ireland and the uk and canada and other places very good at monitoring um people out in the community and having said all that there are plenty of men who desist and and young men because 20% of sex offences are committed by adolescents so there's plenty of adolescents who finish offending when they get into adulthood just as if they would for other kinds of crimes uh, and there are certainly men particularly if they've gone through a uh, and completed a good treatment program and are well monitored in the first 2 to 5 years after that program you know the risks reduce significantly but i think most of us who've been in that field because i worked in treatment before i moved to policing would say there's never any there's there's no such thing as no risk there's just low medium high you know and different ways of managing that risk all right yeah. listen it's been a pleasure to spend some time speaking with you and uh, your book is available in waterstones which means people can pick it up and and read further thank you for being with us from australia that is uh, criminologist patrick tidmarsh uh, his book is called the whole story investigating sexual crime truth 
lies in the path to justice. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for being with us. Courts 96 FM. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.